Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk. Uh, I'm John Gill, uh, Vice President of Education for the ACFE, and today my guest is Art Markman, and he is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in psychology and marketing. He's also the founding director of the uh, Human Dimensions of Organizations program at UT. And he has a lot of degrees. He's got SCB degree from Brown and PhD from the University of Illinois. And he's taught at Northwestern and Columbia. And I know from talking to him previously, the University of Texas is proud to have him as an instructor because he's a good one. And so he's written. The reason I found out about art, I had seen a couple of different articles that he had written on employee fraud and and just bad behavior in general. And that's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. And so we met a few weeks ago and just had a great discussion. So I invited him to come down to the headquarters here in beautiful downtown Austin and talk about fraud and bad behavior. So Art, welcome. John, thanks. for Thanks. It's great to be here. You're in a lot of articles. One I uh, enjoyed was called The Psychology Behind Why People Steal Their Coworkers' Stuff. And I know at the ACP sometimes we focus on the big frauds and, you know, people, CEOs, CFOs stealing millions of dollars. And so I enjoyed this because it really went down to a, a more basic level about, you know, well, why does a seemingly honest hardworking, gets along with their coworkers, steal somebody's lunch out of the refrigerator. Yeah, you know, and it's it's so funny, too, because I think, actually, even when you look at the big stuff, there are uh, there are evil people in the world, but most of the time you're, you're dealing with people who I think have a self-image of being a perfectly upstanding citizen who may go down a particular slippery slope or convince themselves that, that they can do something. And I think there's some parallels, actually, between what you see in the really big cases and what you see just in the, in the run-of-the-mill, somebody grabbing something that isn't theirs out of the community fridge. And, you know, part of it, there's several different intersecting factors, one of which is just the availability uh, you know, one of the things we know about cheating behavior in general is that if you give people an easy opportunity to cheat at something, they will do it uh, when it's when it's just when when there's very little chance that that they're likely to get caught doing it and where they think the consequences are fairly low. And so, you know, it, it, whether it's it's snagging uh, a snack or a sandwich out of the refrigerator or I mean, just think of something really mundane. It's 10 minutes to 6 o'clock. You're, you park in a parking spot that, that requires you to pay for it. And you look around and you think there's very little likelihood that, that someone's going to come by and write you a ticket in the next 10 minutes. So, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to park. Well, technically speaking, you have done something that is in violation of the ordinance that governs parking in that area. And yet I think most people would think it was a calculated risk. And they wouldn't really be casting it even in moral terms. And I don't think for a moment someone would think of that as having an impact on their goodness as a human being. And I, I think that that when we, we think of things that are relatively victimless kinds of crimes, we, we can uphold our self-image that way. And, you know, I think if you, if you don't picture the face of the person whose lunch you just took, you, you don't even necessarily think about how this is affecting someone else. So, so there's, it's easy to do. It's, it's 
There's very low likelihood anyone's going to catch you. There's nobody watching. It doesn't feel like you're doing anybody any significant harm. All of these factors come together in a, in, in a kind of perfect storm that, that supports this kind of, of low-level bad behavior. It's – well, I can see that there may be an apple that's been in there, and I've had this before. It's like, well, there's been – this apple's been in here for three days, and it's going to go bad. Right. If somebody doesn't eat it, you keep thinking. Fair game now. You kind of start thinking, well, you're kind of doing the apple a favor. It's like, you know, if they don't want it, then, you know, I'm hungry. Why can't, you know, I just go ahead and take the apple? Right, right. So it it just doesn't feel like a a problem. And, and, and of course, the amount of effort that might be required to act ethically in that situation, putting a sign out saying, is this anybody's apple? Would somebody mind if I took it? Is... You know, it just it feels like a, a tremendous amount of energy to go through for something that doesn't seem that important. But it, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's easy to see how people can slide into doing that. And again, you know, people draw their ethical lines in different places. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm the sort of person who would take lunch. But you know, I've probably got a couple of pens at home that that once belonged to a, an institution that I worked for. And so, you know, I think that there are. There are certainly places where where people may slip across uh, a line without necessarily thinking too uh, too too deeply about it, but but I think that that it it particularly with some of these things like stealing a lunch, of course, it it has this other impact, which is it it influences the way your coworkers start looking at each other. You know, if you when at the point where you are either the victim, your your sandwich is gone, or you hear about it. One of your colleagues comes to you and says, somebody stole my sandwich. Now you're looking around the office and thinking to yourself, somebody here is a thief. And, and, that's, and, it, and what, it, what that does, there's an interesting concept in psychology now having to do with psychological distance that I, that I really like. There's a, there's a theory that, uh, that Nira Lieberman and Yaakov Trope put forth that's called construal level theory from the word to construe. And the idea behind it is that the more distant you are from something in time, in space, or in social distance, the more abstractly you think about that. So here we're sitting in lovely downtown Austin, Texas. And so New Yorkers are abstract for us at the moment. So we can think of New Yorkers as being this homogenous group of some kind or Californians. But if you go into New York City, then, then you recognize the diversity of people, the specificity of the different kinds of people who live in a city like that. So that's, that's uh, physical distance. Distance in time. So many of your listeners have probably had the experience of signing up to go to a great conference six months in advance that they were really excited about going to. And, and then uh, the day before they're scheduled to go, they're thinking to themselves, why did I agree to do this? I have so much work to do. I, it's not that you didn't know how busy you were going to be six months in the future. It's that when you're planning something six months in advance, you're not even thinking about all of that specificity. And then when it comes close, all you can think of is how much you're giving up in order to go to this conference. And the same thing works with social distance. So we tend to think of people who are way above us or below us in socioeconomic status a little bit more abstractly. We tend to think about people who are very different from us culturally as as being more abstract. And the reason that this matters is in the moment that you are standing there staring at that lunch in the refrigerator, you're not thinking about Joe in accounting whose lunch you're about to eat. 
You're just thinking there's some random abstract employee in, in your firm whose lunch you're about to take. And so, you know, I, I think another piece to this is if you work in an office with three other people, there's a low probability you're taking anybody's lunch because they're pretty much going to know who did it and, and you can envision exactly whose lunch it is. But if you work in a, in a division with 50 or 60 or 80 other people, now not only do you have a little bit more cover uh, in terms of being able to get away with the, the crime, but you can treat the person whose lunch it is really abstractly. You're not thinking about a specific person. It's just some generic person who's going to have to do without lunch. And it, it, I think all of that makes things a little bit easier. Well, I would think, especially in a corporate environment, if you're working, if you're a $50 million company and you're stealing even $10,000, it's very easy to justify that because, like, well, it's a giant company. They drop have all this money. It's, uh, yeah, just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. So that makes that much, it makes it that much easier. Another thing you had mentioned in the article I thought was interesting is the idea that very few of us think about the long or the possible consequences long term. And when I was reading that just recently, I was thinking about uh, Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman, and that just popped in my head. And I'm thinking, I, there's no way that I take Felicity Huffman. If she had thought, well, here's what could happen in the end. I might get my you know, daughter into college, but I'm going to serve you know, time in jail and be vilified in the press and have my picture all over TMZ. And have my daughter angry at me because now everyone's looking at her as though uh, she didn't deserve to be to get the education she got. And I can I've interviewed many people who went to jail for fraud, and not one of them ever thought about well, this could lead me sitting in a jail cell, you know, for five years. And I that's something in in training people in the workplace. I don't know how to do that. I remember you know when I was in high school and they you know, don't drink and drive, and they show you all these films of people who had wrecks, and I, I don't know that that necessarily, I think it, it did help, but I don't know if that's uh, the way to go. I don't, uh, how can we do a better job of impressing upon people, of, like, if you steal, there are consequences to that? Yeah, and I think, I think there's actually two, well, three components that, that come into play here. One of which is, how do we get people to think specifically about those consequences for the future? The second of them is, how can we help people to grapple with the situation that they're going to be in in that moment? Because there is, there is some kind of temptation that's associated with the action that you're going to take. And then the third is, how do you get people to actually plan for what they're going to do in those kinds of situations in which there is a temptation? I think all of those matter. So, you know, part of the problem is I think that there are plenty of people who in the moment just aren't thinking about what the consequences are going to be. And I think this construal level theory plays a role in that because the future is distant and it's abstract. And so, you know, you don't necessarily think, I mean, think about people who are smokers. Lung cancer is just, uh, it's an abstraction. Uh, and, and so you're not thinking about the fact that this specific action you're going to take right now could have that kind of consequence. And so I, I do think it's important for people to, to put themselves mentally nearer to that future state. And it's not just fraud situations where this comes up. There's a lot of related research in things like how do you get people to save for retirement? 
where if you're 45 years old, your 75-year-old self can fend for itself because it's 30 years off into the future. And so how do you bring yourself socially closer to your 75-year-old self so that you can envision how much you're going to want to eat at that point or travel or whatever it is that you need to save your money for? So I think that there's lots of situations where there are things we'd like to do in the present that seem perfectly reasonable or at least perfectly safe to do that have long-term consequences that we don't think about. So I, I do think it's important to help people to get socially nearer to that future person. So that, that's one issue. But I also think that we have to grapple with the actual complexity of the, of the kinds of situations that lead people to do the wrong thing. Because, you know, it's, it's interesting. My, my grandfather was a pharmacist. And, and he, would, he would give me these anti-drug lectures, you know, and this is back in the 70s, you know, before it was really popular to do that sort of thing. And he took a very different tack than, than what Nancy Reagan ultimately adopted years later of the Just Say No. He, he did this interesting thing. He said, uh, he said when he, he told me this whole story about how when he, was, uh, when he was about 21, he had to have nasal surgery. And they, uh, and back when they did that, they used to use cocaine as an anesthetic. And they used that partly to numb the pain and partly because it's a vasodilator, and so a constrictor rather, and so it would actually keep the, the, the area from bleeding too much. He said, so, you know, he, they did this surgery outpatient, and then they let him go onto the street. He said he was high as a kite walking down the street. He said, man, cocaine is really great. He said, so, so don't, that's why people do it. He said, but, but here's all the reasons why it's dangerous. So here's, here's why you have to actually be, be careful and not, not actually engage with that. And I thought, well, that's interesting, right? Because he wasn't saying uh, this is a dumb drug to do. There's no reason to do it. He said, no, there's a really good reason to do it. If you do it, it's going to feel great. But here are all the dangers and why you shouldn't do it anyhow. And so it's important to understand the real temptation you're going to be under to do the wrong thing. Uh, you, you mentioned drinking and driving. Everyone will say, oh, I would never do that. And yet, manifestly, people are drinking and driving. And some of it has to do with you're in a somewhat impaired mental state, and so you're not necessarily thinking as clearly. Often people underestimate the, the likelihood of getting in a wreck when they're drunk. But I think there's a bunch of other issues as well, like people starting to worry about, well, if I take a lift home, how am I going to get my car tomorrow? So it's really useful for people to actually project themselves into that situation before it happens and plan for it. That might be, if I'm going to go somewhere and drink, I'm going to take a lift to begin with rather than driving my car. Or Here's how I'm going to make the plan to pick my car up so that I've already thought this through so that I know what to do in that situation. Because in the moment, you're not necessarily going to be thinking very clearly about it. Well, that's a good point. It also goes back to your psychological distance. If I'm sitting in, in a classroom and somebody is showing a film about people I don't know, have no connection with, and I'm thinking, well, I don't know those people. It's like I've got no connection with them at all then I'm, I don't think it has that much of an impact. But I do remember early, oh, I just got out of college, was working at a company, and we used there was a bar across the street. And so I was not paid a lot. So they had a happy hour and a free buffet. So we'd go over there and we would drink and we would have, you know, eat on the free buffet and go home. And there were probably, you know, some of us were 
probably a little impaired and should not have done that. Well, uh, it, it wasn't after one of these, but one of our coworkers over the weekend had been drinking too much, and he hit a telephone pole and it killed him, and we went to the funeral. And that that had an impact because now there's somebody I know that I used to drink with, and then we would all leave and go drive that actually uh, was killed. And so that that got my attention when nothing else would. And so maybe... If you're doing training within an organization, it's to get them to stop and think about, look, it does, it affects all of us if, if you steal, and here are the consequences, and use examples from that organization about the, the bad things that happened when people didn't stop and think. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important when you do that kind of training to get people to really feel the tension that they're going to feel when they're actually in the situation. They have to actually be torn by it. So when you treat it abstractly, you're like, well, I would certainly never do that. I would certainly never steal from the company. I would certainly never do anything, you know, commit sexual misconduct. I would certainly never drink and drive because we know the right answers to these things. And yet we know that people engage in this activity. And so what's important is for people to be put in that situation in which they really feel the temptation between the two options and then create strategies that help them to do the right thing in that situation, partly so that they practice that, partly so that they are reminded of the right thing to do when they feel that temptation. Because what part of the way that we, are, that we act is that, that we act on the basis of our memories of what we're supposed to do in situations. And so if you need to be reminded of the right outcome, and the best way to be reminded is to put yourself in that situation so that when it occurs again, you know what it is you're supposed to do. And so a lot of training does just, just tells us the abstract rules and maybe gives us a scenario, although even many of those scenarios are not that complicated. What we really need to do is not just to tell some vignette story, but really put people in a situation in which they are in that scenario. You, you, you know, you're, you're there and you're really, there's your car and you've been drinking. Uh, you know, there's this person and you find them attractive, but they're a coworker. You know, you have to feel that tension so that you can then say, but when I feel this, this is actually the right action to take. And so I'm being reminded that even though there's a part of me that wants to do the thing that's the wrong thing, I know I have to do the right thing and I have a strategy. And you can actually use that psychological distance to help you in that situation. So, so far we've been thinking about situations in which that distance is a problem, but actually you can create a sense of distance and, and that will lessen some of the temptation. So, so part of what you can do is when you're feeling uh, the temptation to speak inappropriately to somebody, to steal a lunch or something like that, you can try and say, well, this isn't, this isn't a beautiful lunch that I want to eat. It's just a food. You know, treat it abstractly, and now it just doesn't seem that desirable. And so now you can go off and, and, and find some other solution to your problem. So, so distance yourself from that. 
and 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 do that in a way that that can that may help to dampen the the motivation that's driving you in the wrong direction and i think that part of what's important is for all of us to recognize and this is actually why i like these small examples like stealing a lunch is because most of us think well i would never steal $10,000 from a company but if we back out far enough we can find something someone's willing to do you know whether it's taking a pen or have you know having one drink too many and still getting in the car or stealing 10 minutes of parking from the city and when you understand what factors drive you to do those things now you can begin to say, well, but if I didn't want to do those things, what are some of the strategies that I would engage in to make sure I didn't do those? And then keep applying those same kinds of strategies to the bigger and bigger elements that might actually cause real problems within an organization. That's a great idea. And I think a lot of, well, some organizations, I think, suffer from, well, we need an anti-fraud training and they put everybody in a room and they say, like, fraud is bad. Don't do it. Just say no. Just say no. And I, I, everybody has a different definition of fraud. So I like the idea if you're going to do this, then, you know, divide up into small groups and give people an actual scenario. You're an accountant. They come in and they say, look, uh, we need to add in these sales. And I don't have any backup. You're just going to have to take my word on it. Uh, and it's the end of the quarter. And you're thinking, this is not correct procedure. And these may be fake sales. They're trying to pump up their numbers. So what do you do? It's like, well, let's walk through the choices. It's like, well, the easiest thing uh, may be to just get them off your back and say you do anything. Well, if anything goes wrong, you can just blame them. But that's not how this works. If you're an accountant and you're putting in fake numbers, they're going to come to you. And now you're partly responsible. And what can happen if you're a CPA? You could lose your license. And Oh, you get fired, and now you're going to have another, you know, may go to jail. And, and you go, if you can walk through these scenarios with people and, and give them these where you're, they're actually faced with the situation, uh, the theory is that makes it more real to them and, and puts them in a situation where they have to make uh, the correct choice. And, and it also helps people to recognize when, when they're lacking the knowledge about what they're actually supposed to do. So somebody comes to you and says, I want you to add these sales in, and these are people who are perhaps your supervisors or people higher up in the food chain who are asking you to do this. Well, okay, so you have misgivings about it. You'd actually like to be in a situation where you don't do it. Who do you go to? What, what is the procedure? Do you actually know, not just generally speaking, but specifically, who do you call in that situation? And if you don't know, then, then it's going to be hard for you to do the right thing. And even if you do know, do you know what the procedure is going to be after that? Have you, have you put yourself on the hook for a protracted investigation in which, in which now you are, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're damaging your own potential future career by by being caught up in, in some significant investigation, which, which you know, people are making these kinds of cost-benefit calculations. And it's, it's funny, I think you and I may have talked about this a long time ago in one of our conversations, but you know, at the University of Texas, we, we, we've had some unfortunate incidents where students have, uh, have evolved, uh, two students have actually been killed on campus in the last several years. And one of them uh, was killed he, by, by a, a, a disturbed student who was carrying a knife around campus for about a half hour before he ultimately stabbed someone. And many students on campus saw this student carrying a knife and nobody called the police. And, 
And one of the one of the questions in the aftermath was, well, why didn't anybody call 911 or call emergency services? And just to report, there's a student walking around with a knife. And and I think that a, a big part of the problem was, I think students had a misconception that if they call emergency services, that they're going to have to stick around and they're going to have to be a part of the investigation and that, and that now they're involved in something that they weren't involved in. When, in fact, it turns out you can call 911, make a report, and then walk away and let the authorities deal with it after that. I mean, you're certainly welcome to stay and provide information, but it is, you're not obliging yourself to anything other than having reported something. And I think that if more people understood what procedure they're signing themselves up for by making a report, it might change the likelihood of engaging in that kind of behavior. And so we, we often assume a lot more knowledge on people's part than they actually have. And I think we have to really walk people through a specific scenario in part to figure out what do they actually think is going on in this situation. I think that's an excellent idea. And when you're doing the training, you really have to stop and put yourself in the employee's position. And I think you're right. You can't assume that, well, they, we, we sent out in the employee handbook, it clearly says, here's the procedure to follow when you suspect some kind of wrongdoing. Yeah. But do people really understand what that means? And do they even understand, well, what is wrongdoing? Right. I mean, we're talking about... <laughs> Somebody stealing a lunch out of the refrigerator, or are we talking about somebody, you know, embezzling hundred thousand dollars? And there's a there's a wide span of all kinds of things in between, yeah. and uh, it means things like close association with vendors is is a giant red flag that we see in a lot of cases. And same thing after it happens. Well, didn't you think it was odd that the purchasing manager and the salesperson were going to lunch? Uh, together quite frequently and we're taking vacations together and they're like, well, yeah, I thought that was unusual, but I, I didn't know what to do about it or I thought, well, it's none of my business. And okay. and you do have to, you've got to, peop- the, the inertia comes into play. The yeah. easiest thing to do is nothing. Right. And, and, and particularly if you step into a pre-existing situation. So you walk in and there's already this relationship between someone in purchasing and a vendor. And, and now you're looking at this and thinking, well, I guess that's the way things are done here without coming in and saying, you know, this, this seems a little odd. Maybe it's worth pointing this out. Because actually fresh eyes can often alert people to things that they weren't really paying attention to. And so it's also important to let new employees know, you know, it's, it's actually okay to, to report something. You're not, you know, and it's hard when you want to make a good first impression at a place. Of course, you don't necessarily, you know, we, we, we teach kids from early on, you don't want to be a tattletale, you don't want to be a squealer. We don't, you know, movies and, and popular culture are not, you know, we call, we call people who, who call other people out a rat. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't say, you know, even whistleblower isn't like a, a whistleblower isn't, isn't, isn't a heroic term. It's not <laughs> a know? term of endearment. Right. right. Yeah. Well, not only does it, has it, has it come to have a certain amount of stigma attached to it, but, but even, even in the absence of the stigma, a whistleblower isn't, isn't a heroic figure. It isn't say, you know, this isn't the day, the day saver, you know, the lifesaver. This is a, you know, I mean, you go to the, you go to the swimming pool and it's a lifeguard there, right? That's, that's a heroic term. Whistleblower, not so much. And so we, we don't, 
we have to overcome a tremendous cultural pressure against saying something. And so there's, there's a lot of these factors that come into play. And that's why really experiencing that tension is so important because you need people to go, gosh, in that situation, I would, you know, so here I, you know, you say, well, you're a new employee. If you see something, you've got to say something. You've, you've, you can't just say that because it'd be like, oh, yes, of course. You have to then say to them, I know you're going to feel like you're trying to make a good first impression on everybody. And that, and that the last thing you want to do is to be seen as the, as, as the Dudley do-right, the goody two-shoes, the, you know, who's come in and, and is, is, is making a, an accusation. But, but here's why it's important. Here's why we value that. Here's why we reward that kind of behavior. Because if you don't address that head on, then you're not really taking seriously the competing goals that people have that that are the root of so many of the cases of of fraud, small and large, that you see. Now, those were some good points. And just to wrap up, we're, we're uh, out of time, is I'm a huge believer in training. And if you want, you've got to get the employees on your side and for several reasons. One is we just talked about whistleblowing, is, is they see things. We don't want them to just sit there and think, well, um, I should just keep my mouth shut. It's none of my business. And you've got to train them to here is what you're supposed to do in these situations. And the other is they may be sitting there also thinking about, well, I could steal this or get away with this and no one would find out. And, and you've got to impress upon them is like there are consequences to this. And I, I really like the idea of how important it is to put people into real scenarios yeah. and, and, give them a scenario and have them think through this. And I think that's the, at least some way to create that uh, real tension that they might feel. And, it, and it's got to be real world things because you're right. If you say, well, would you steal $100,000? People like, no. Like, well, but if, if a coworker came to you and said, you know, can you change these numbers? Well, what would you do? That's a lot more. I don't, I don't know what I would do. You know, yeah. I've got to think through this and, you know, what, uh, if what should I do if I'm faced with this situation? It's like if if I think it's wrong, how do I report it? If I did it, what would be the possible consequences? And so maybe the, the idea is that next time they're faced with something in real life, that that scenario would have helped them, you know, right. stop. And well, here's what we did before. Yeah. Let me do this again and think through this and and make the right decision. Yeah. Well, Art. Thank you uh, very much for being with us today, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. John, that'd be great. Thanks so much. And uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll look for you on our next edition of Fraud Talk. 